This is Steve Addison for the Movements Podcast. A podcast for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. Today we're talking to David Watson, a pioneer and catalyst for disciple-making movements all over the world. Together with his son Paul, he's the author of Contagious Disciple-Making. I began by asking David what led up to the writing of the book. The writing of the book has been actually developing for a number of years. We knew that, or I I knew that we should uh, capture the things that we were learning and help other people understand where we were developing the CPM and DMM principles from. My fear in writing the book was actually uh, once you codify something, then everybody wants things to stay stagnant. And the very core nature of DMM is that it, it is not stagnant. It's fluid. It has to be fluid in order to function from culture to culture. And as cultures shift, DMM has to shift with it unless it becomes like everything else. It becomes something that was instead of something that is. Mm. Now, David, every, everybody's got their terms. What, what do you mean by DMM? Uh, Disciple-making movement is a methodology that, that looks at the holistic approach to people. Access is through ministry and loving people. Um, and, and the word access is probably a bad word, but I haven't come up with a better one yet. We, we enter into new places by caring for them and loving them. And the churches we start are encouraged to do the same thing, that you don't just walk up and, and start with your with your preaching or your message, you walk up and, and you and you earn the right by caring for people to let them see your spiritual life and then to address them at their, their level of spiritual life. So that's the first step. And, and, the, and the book deals with these first seven steps. The, the next step then is, is moving to a spiritual conversation, which is, uh, which is a skill set that a lot of people need to work through, is how do you move to a spiritual conversation? And that's, that's a challenge for many people to go from basically chit-chat to a to a uh, a caring conversation, to a significant conversation, and then on to a spiritual conversation, and that's important. Once you're in the spiritual conversation, then is how do you how do you move from just talking about spiritual things to learning about God mm. and becoming you know coming into a relationship with Him. And then bringing your family and your friends and your neighbors into that conversation and, and do it at a group level because groups learn better than individuals. Groups learn faster than individuals. And groups are able to transmit information over generational lines, which is, uh, which is incredibly important if you want to reach a nation or a people group or a city or any of those, those kind of things. And then once you once you have your group and they they fall in love with with Jesus, then how do they become a fully functioning church? And, and the reality is is that a small group can't fulfill all the fun, functions of church. And that's where you start looking at how do groups relate to one another? How do they have significant relationships? How do they develop those relationships? So all of that is a part of the process. And then to make that work, who are the leaders that we engage? And how do we equip those leaders and mentor those leaders 
to go beyond just knowledge, but go into how do we make more leaders. So the replication part of everything is, is a big deal at DMM. Okay. And what what's your understanding of the difference between you talked about groups and churches? What's what's the the dividing line there? Well, the I'm actually trying to work on a rubric that helps us understand that dividing line. The Bible has a lot to say about what the church is and what the functions are. And and often uh, when I evaluate even even organizations that now that call themselves church, well, if they're not involved in, in the Great Commandments and the Great Commission, then they're probably not church regardless of what they call themselves. And, and that's, just, that's just the first step. What does it mean to be the bride of Christ? What, it, what does it mean to be the pillar and foundation of truth? What does it mean to be the field of God or the household of God? Uh, all, of these, all of these metaphors that give us an idea of what God expects church to look like, and then looking at the function of church, Ezekiel, uh, 34 is a great place just to start, or First Chronicles 16, verses 8, following is another good place to look at, at the functions that God wants to see from leaders and from the church. So a group can focus on a Bible study, and they can focus on obeying that Bible study, and they can focus on ministry to the people around them, but that still doesn't make them a church until they are significantly involved in obedience to the Word about who the church is, and the functions the church has. And so we, help, we want to help leaders understand that a Bible study is not a church, that a, that a church is significant, significantly engaged with each other, and they're significantly engaged with the community to, to bear witness to God, but to also show God's love and, and to care for one another and care for those around them. So there's so many things when you start thinking about church, but most of us can look at something and say, yes, that's a church, as long as we don't have a building-based mentality. And, and we can also look at things and say, you know, that's not quite a church yet. Mm. Uh, I, have, I have a friend who says, you know, a church, I, says, I, I can't tell you what a church is, but I can say yes when I see it. Mm. Okay. Well, I remember uh, years ago now when we first met at exercise, you took the room through of just what's the bare minimum of what a church is. And uh, it was quite um, powerful for me because we, we normally try and load it with everything we can think of. And one of the points you made in the book is that we've got to sort of, um, what was, we've got to deculturize um, the gospel. We've got to sort of take take away everything that is not essential when we come to to pass on the gospel or what discipleship or church is. Is that right, that it's, it's getting it down to bare bones so that it can be transmitted to other cultures and contexts? Yeah, yeah, looking at the difference between what is cultural and, and what, is, uh, what is in fact biblical. And what I find in, in my own myth, is that I was I was much more able to pass on my culture than I was to pass on the biblical understanding of church. So I could talk about this is how we sing, this is how we worship, this is how we program, this is how we do discipleship classes, 
This is how we prepare for sermons. This is how we visit the sick and, and heal those. I could talk about all those things from a programmatic perspective, but I had difficulty understanding what is the being of church? What does that actually look like from a biblical perspective without my branded Christianity understanding of those things? And that's where we have to work is what are we doing that's out of our branded Christianity understanding? And do we understand the biblical processes and the biblical functions well enough to communicate those without communicating our branding? And that doesn't mean branding's bad, except hmm. branding also often is at cross purposes with culture. Okay, explain that a bit more. Yeah, well, for instance, uh, if we look at Islamic culture, singing is not a part of the culture, hmm. and yet we often come in, the first thing we do is start teaching songs, or even prayer. Show me one place in the Bible that says, bow your head and close your eyes when you pray. Hmm. Yep, one of the first things we do when we teach people to pray is say, you know, you need to bow your head and close your eyes and, and clasp your hands together or hold your hands in a certain way, and, and that makes it a prayer. And yet we don't see those kind of uh, instructions in the, in the Word of God. And my personal opinion is if the Bible is neutral on something, it's cultural. That, that's an area that you can let culture deal with it any way you want to. So how a people pray, most every culture has a way of praying. What we want to do is redeem that mm. uh, to, to refocus where that prayer goes. The same with worship. Most cultures have forms of worship. We want to redeem that. We want it to be biblical. We want it to be obedient. We want it to be, we want it to be opening and caring to other people. So those things can come into the process, but they're changed by the very nature of being obedient to the gospel. And, and when I say the word gospel, I don't mean how you get saved. I mean the person of Jesus Christ hmm. and, and all that relationship means in every single aspect of our lives. David, the, the difference, I, I, you know, people have said that sort of thing. I think I've always been concerned it's left to a Westerner or an academic to work out what church should look like in that receptive culture or receptor culture. From What I learned from you is, no, our, our job is to keep these cultural things out of there, to teach obedience to God's word. The cultural experts are the new believers, so it's, right. it's not being driven by the messenger or the cross-cultural worker. They're trying to get out of the way, present uh, the heart of the gospel and, and obedience to God's word, and then those new believers have got to wrestle with what does that look like. Is that right? That, that's exactly right. And part of, part of what we try to help people understand is uh, the third column in the Discovery Bible study is how will you obey this in your context? How will you understand and obey this passage? And, and so when you, when you ask that question, there, there's a couple of things happen. One is where they are in their understanding of the word impacts their obedience. And, and that's important because as a person who's been studying the Bible for, for more than 50 years, uh, if it were still like it, like it was when I was a 13-year-old, it, it would not be much good to me now because my life is no longer like a 13-year-old. Uh, and yet I can read the Bible now, and it's relevant because I ask the same question. In my current context, how will I obey this? 
And that's really important when we're looking at starting churches cross-culturally is that how I love my wife may be very different culturally than how another husband would love his wife. And yet we love our wives the same amount, or maybe they love their wife more than I love mine. Mm. But how they express that love is different. And it's the same with love for God, how they express that love, the whole understanding of Christ being the bride uh, uh, or the church being the bride of Christ. And, and what does that kind of love look like? What is it? And, and every culture deals with that. And, and the Bible tries to work through that and, and help people see it and understand it. Hmm. So where, I mean, what, what are the experiences and things in the field that have sort of shaped your thinking and gotten you to this point? How, how have you seen this played out? Well, when you, when you don't hit culture head on, uh, it's going to allow the doors to open up wider more quickly. And that certainly has been the case. We have, we have seen high success among almost every major culture on the planet now. And probably the, the, the least impacted part of the world right now is, is Western. Hmm. Uh, Middle-class Western people in Europe and North America and, and other places around the world. Uh, those are the, That seems to be the, one of the hardest nuts to crack right now that we're working on. But when we, when we don't bang our head against culture and we say, how, how does God want them to relate to him? And understanding that the gospel is relational, it's, it's, not a, it's not just a message, it's about a relationship between the creator and the created. And when we get to the point of that kind of understanding, we start, we start thinking through, what in my message is a barrier to them listening to God? And when you look at John 6, and Jesus said, you know, they, anyone who listens and learns from God will come to me. That's the words of Jesus. And, and I started saying, you know, often I want them to listen and learn from me instead of listen and learn from God. And when we got that part out of the way, when we just got people into the Word without me mm -hmm. teaching, without me preaching to them, then they were much more responsive. And I have people say, well, you know, people won't discuss the Word. I said, well, normally if people won't have discussions, it's probably because you're sitting in the room. Mm -hmm. Because every culture, people sit around and talk about things. Mm -hmm. and, and what we want to do is, is make what they're talking about the Word of God and not the gossip of the community today. And, and those, are, those are the things that began to come out. As we got people having discussions around the Word, without the outsider monitoring that discussion, but with the, with the filter that says, how are you gonna obey this? And with the training that if someone says something that isn't directly visible from the word of God, that it's challenged. And, and you set up those filters early, then you start getting a people who love the Lord, who care for God, who care for one another, and the gospel seems to move much more quickly that way. Mm. And you said, um, it, as we'd all agree, it's, it's, it's hard and slow in Western settings, but you are, you are seeing God at work through disciple-making movements. So where you see the exceptions, what, what are you learning um, about that? 
Well, one of the exceptions we're learning is that many uh, middle-class Westerners, uh, they go to work, they, they do whatever their bosses say all day long, they come home, and, and they don't need anything. They don't need at work, they don't need at home, they don't need their family, they don't need their community. And this is so different from a village life where everyone is learning how to lead at some level. I mean, even the, even the eight-year-old boy that goes out and gets the goats by himself has learned a leadership principle. Mm. And in Western life, we're not learning to lead. We're learning to only follow and to follow almost blindly. And that, that makes it very difficult to replicate leaders and see things move head forward very quickly and easily. So first thing we're learning is we have to teach leadership right along with what we're doing. The second thing we're learning is that most Westerners have a very small community and, and some of them don't have a community at all. So we're having to help them understand what it means to live in community. Now, strangely enough, all of them are seeking to live in community. Every one of them are seeking to live there, but they, they don't. And they don't know how to relate to each other. They don't know how to care for each other. They don't, they don't know how to do anything in a, in a bigger community setting. And so setting up what, I, what we're calling those middle communities that, that are intimate enough for them to know everyone, but big enough to stretch their thinking and stretch their relationships has become a, become serious, a, a serious part of, of reaching, uh, I, we call the, the, uh, the middle class Western mindset that most of them are, are post-Christian. Most of them are just working, just trying to keep their heads above water financially. Um, most of them are not doing anything but work and, and home and then play at some level with, with, with some friends. And that whole culture makes it difficult to develop a self-replicating process simply because they don't know how to replicate anything. Hmm. And how does that intersect with what you've, you've said about people in the West living in silos, that they, you know, they're not really relating to their neighbours, they have a relational world of sorts, um, but it may not be connected geographically or to the person next door. So you're trying to penetrate those silos. Well, how do you get community out of that? Yeah, that's a tough one. I don't, we don't have an answer to that one yet. We just know that because they do travel, they are mobile, we could move them into places. But they're silos like the guys who golf together. That's a silo. And, and all they do is golf together and maybe go out and have a beer. But that, that seems to be the extent of the relationship. When you start asking people questions like, when, if your whole family got sick, hmm. who could you rely on to help you? Uh, they, they don't know. If you became homeless today, who would you talk to hmm. to help you out? And, and they have no, no community they can point to that says, you know, if this were happy to be, this is who I would talk to, this is who I would, would relate to. And, and it's fascinating that that's, that's where most people in the West live. They live in very small silos. They know fewer people than most other cultures do. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I know, you know, back in, in Wesley's day, you know, they they sort of worked 
with the drift to the cities and, and the Methodist movement became those communities. But even then, people like they are in China, often they drift to the cities and still find the people they grew up with, you know, from the village right. or whatever. Whereas here, we're, we're in the cities, but we're in the cities as individuals living in these silos. Well, I, li- I live in a middle-class community that has 10,000 people in it, and there are no stores, there are no places of worship. We have schools and swimming pools. Mm. And that's basically the community life is around the schools and the swimming pools. And you're sitting there going, this is fascinating. I mean, Jan and I didn't realize the culture we were moving into when we when we actually moved into it. But then as we've lived there for a year now, we begin to say, man, how do we reach this kind of community where most every, it's a bedroom community. Most everyone drives into Dallas to work. Uh, the children go to school in the community, so often mothers will know each other, the ones who aren't working. And, and the community itself doesn't play together. They don't, they don't know each other very well. I mean, I've met my neighbors to each side, but that's about the extent of it. We, we have very little connection to anything they're interested in, and they certainly look at us as being strange people when we start talking to them about significant things. So it's just harder. And, and then if you go to apartment life where people are packed even tighter together or you go to refugee-type life where it's even more tightly packed or you go to homeless life, and then you have, you have all these variations from, from lone, lone individuals that, that need to know the Lord but really have no community to people whose community are about their silos, who they, who, what their affinity group is more than their family and, and more than where they live. So there's, there's just not a sense of neighborhood anymore in many places. Now, when we find neighborhoods that are actually socially interacting with each other, uh, DMM works much more quickly there. Okay. Are you seeing any exceptions? Not really. Uh, it's just a matter of, again, getting people into the word and getting them talking about it getting them talking to everyone who's significant to them about it. The, the process stays pretty much the same regardless of cultural mm. context, but it's always the same. The, the first statement everywhere we've taken DMM has been, it won't work here. Mm-hmm. That's always the first statement. And, and when you think something won't work, then it won't. Hmm. You, you won't put the energy into it. You won't put the time into it. You won't put the prayer into it. There's so many things that you want to because you say it won't work here. So why should I pray two or three hours a day if it won't work here? Hmm. Why should I try to move to significant conversations and then to spiritual conversations if that won't work here? Why should I expect disciple groups to come together and study the Word of God together if that won't work here? And it's fascinating. I take the critical elements, and you, you've probably seen the critical elements. They're in the back of the book also. I can sit down one by one with those critical elements and ask people to say, it won't work here, and say, now, is this a problem? By element by element. Hmm. And everyone says, no, that's exactly what we believe. We believe that's exactly what we want to see happen. And then I, see, then I say, then why, when it's all put together, uh, do you say it won't work? And they kind of get a funny look on their face. And, and from there, sometimes it starts a new conversation. But sometimes 
because it won't work. The conversation never goes forward. Yeah. And, and our and our leadership, the initial leadership to see this work, is found in the body of Christ. Someone has to be mm. first to take this message into communities. Mm. And, and that someone isn't someone who doesn't know God. It's got to be someone who knows God, understands what we're doing, mm. and, and, and the process we want to see to make it happen. But it, it's, uh, it's fascinating to me that once you get to that place of saying it won't work, then you have, you have basically blocked off what's going to happen. I was on, I was on a phone call just, just a few minutes ago. Uh, with a with a guy who just been to Spain, and I, I trained DMM in Spain about seven or eight years ago, and people got up and left the meeting and mm-hmm. said, and, and first day, I mean, they got up and left the meeting and didn't return. Well, today uh, they're in a conference. The same guys who got up and left are hosting a conference, saying, "We got to learn this." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they're and they're regretting the fact that they walked out of the conference eight yeah. years ago. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it, it, and that's what we see all over the world. That first step in is it won't work here, and then we got to get them past saying, okay, what is it that won't work here? Is it scripture doesn't work here? Is it prayer doesn't work here? Is is loving people and caring mm-hmm. for people won't work here? Is getting people involved and engaged in studying the Word of God, that doesn't work here. I mean, which part doesn't work? Mm. And walking through all the elements, then they start realizing, hmm, maybe there's something different here. But they have to open up to talk about those elements or we can't get them past it. Yes. And I guess, too, it's a very Western thing. It won't work here. It's, there's another question is, uh, is it right? Are these things right to do? And, um, yeah. you know, uh, and typically, I guess we can say, OK, um, we're not seeing sufficient numbers of multiplying movements in a Western setting. But I, I would hazard a guess we are seeing when people apply these principles and practices that, you know, in, in contagious uh, disciple making, when they apply those things, they are going to see God at work. They are going to see fruitfulness, people coming to faith. We're, we've still just got... They, oh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I said they, they will see an uptick in everything if they just start doing the process. Hmm. And, and they may not see movement because, quite frankly, most Westerners' leadership is controlled, not enabling and so if you if you work with your leadership from a control perspective, when you start seeing all of a sudden going from no groups to 100 groups in a few weeks, uh, that scares you to death as a control leader because there's no way you can control it. So they, they very, very quickly clamp on control systems that stop the growth instead of trying to figure out systems of how we build relationships so deep that it doesn't matter if it grows fast. Hmm. And, and that's that I think that's that's not uniquely Western, but it's more strongly Western. Yeah. So David, um, if someone was to to pick up the book, uh, Contagious Disciple Making, and sit down and maybe read it through as a as, with a group of people or with a ministry partner, 
what do they need to, to do to get started in this? It's like anything else. You have to get out and try it. You've got to get out and do it and recognize that you're going to be uncomfortable, recognize you're going to fail. Uh, you know, I, I tell people all the time, my life has always been about 90% plus failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's just the nature of the kind of work we do is that it's mostly failure from, from a worldly perspective. But it's, it's the few percentage points that actually make a difference that, that can change an entire city, an entire nation. And literally, we've seen entire nations change. Uh, Sierra Leone is a good example. Went from a totally Muslim government that now has a mostly Christian government, and, and that's a that's a massive change when you see mm. government government change that way uh, because of, of Christianity and and knowing God and caring about God. And and they don't talk a lot about Christianity. They just talk about. You know, we want to be faithful to God and His message to us, and and that caught on, and they, that's that's the major conversation they have. So those are those are some of the aspects that that we have to think through is understanding that we are going to fail in this process simply because if we're not talking to the right person, the message doesn't move, and the relationship with Christ is what we want to develop, not just moving the message. So those are, those are the aspects we, we deal with. Uh, if we want to see this happen in the West, then we have to more and more recognize that we can't come with, okay, I can, I can get 200 people into a meeting and, and preach to them, and I can, I can, through a lot of energy and effort, keep that process going when, when in fact, it's, um, it's not, not going to happen that way. David, what, what are you learning uh in terms of uh, existing churches taking the principles of the book and applying it to their ministry? The common statement we're getting all over the world is that churches don't have a good handle on how to make disciple makers. They all have discipleship programs, and no church I meet is happy with their discipleship program. And part of that is the discipleship program that most churches have is about how do you fit into our church, not how your relationship to Jesus grows and develops to impact your family and and your community. So out of that, uh, people are starting to use our book and just ask the question, what are we doing right, what are we doing wrong, or what should we stop doing, what should we start doing in order to become a disciple-making church or have people in our church who are in fact running disciple-making systems or processes inside our church. And, and they're beginning to use the book as a, as a starting point for deconstructing what they've been doing, but also then replacing what they're deconstructing with a new understanding of disciple-making, that it's about building a deep, abiding relationship with Christ in all matters in our life. And, and, and Jesus said very clearly over and over again in the Bible, if you love me, you're going to do what I say. You're going to obey my commands. You're going to observe the things that I'm teaching you. And those are foreign aspects to discipleship in, the, in most Western cultures. Most Western cultures, discipleship is about fitting in. It's not about a deep abiding relationship with Christ. And that's what we're trying to help the church understand here in America is that DMM is not a program of evangelism. 
It's a program of walking into a marriage relationship with Christ that changes everything. And that, that, that marriage relationship is eternal. It's not something we can start and stop or shouldn't be something we can start and stop. So those are the, the kind of conversations we're beginning to develop with, uh, with the local churches. That's all we've got time for today. Make sure you visit ContagiousDiscipleMaking.com for links to David and Paul Watson's books and resources. I'm Steve Addison and this has been the Movements Podcast.